chapters 12 and 13. Exodus chapters 12 and 13, and then we'll uh, uh, be spending our time really in 1 Corinthians 5. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, we'll look at the, really the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5, but uh, we're working our way through Exodus, so uh, this is kind of our next stop. Uh, we'll read uh, Exodus 12, verses 14 and 15, and then uh, Exodus chapter 13, verses 3 to 10, and then 1 Corinthians 5, uh, the whole chapter. <clears throat> All right, before we read uh, the Word of God, let's pray together. Our Father, we are delighted uh, to uh, see what you work in us uh, through your Word tonight. We pray that wherever your good news is going out across the world um, uh, right now or uh, in the coming hours, that you would accomplish mighty things, even as it's our hope and prayer that you have already accomplished mighty things earlier in the day. And so as we turn uh, to your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit who wrote it would impress it upon our hearts, highlight the work of Christ, and uh, move us unto repentance and faith and obedience. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, Exodus uh, 12, uh, we'll read uh, verse, uh, uh, verses 14 to 15. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Then Exodus 13, uh, beginning at verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord." Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out from Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year." And then 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, that's where we'll be <clears throat> camping out tonight. We'll read uh, the entire chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not in all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives uh, this evening. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us uh, here tonight, um, uh, if you noticed in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord said something uh, interesting in verse 15. He wrote, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So right embedded in this feast of unleavened bread that the Israelites were supposed to celebrate uh, year after year after year is this notion that you're supposed to uh, 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 not partake of bread, which is leavened, and if you do, you're cut off. So there's, the Lord is already separating how Israel lived in the past in Egypt from how they're going to be able to live uh, in the future in the wilderness. And I'm fairly confident that when the Israelites heard this command from the Lord in Exodus 12 and then Exodus 13, that none of them would think, <laughs> 1,300 years later, the Apostle Paul is going to latch on to this Feast of Unleavened Bread <laughs> and actually apply it to church discipline. And, and actually teach the people that he was talking to, look, just as you had to get rid of leaven out of your house, so in the new covenant, the church has to get rid of the leaven of sin, of malice and evil, because we're a new lump. So what the Lord is teaching the Israelites in bringing them out of Egypt with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, actually in the new covenant, uh, has to do with, uh, with church discipline, which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are leavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, I want us to, to notice, because this is what Paul is drawing our attention to, in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, just four things as we walk through the passage. Um, I want us to know uh, the case of church discipline, the, the nature of it, what's going on that required it. Uh, secondly, the process of it. Third, the goals of it. And then, uh, finally, the reason for uh, church discipline. What, why, why should we do it? So the case, the process, the goals, and the reason. We'll begin with uh, the case in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. So uh, the Corinthian church is noted for being uh, uh, far and above every other church uh, as the most gifted church. They had gifts coming out of their ears. They they had so many gifts, in fact, that, that Paul's actually got to uh, teach them over and over how to use these gifts to the, for the edification of other people, because many were using their gifts for self-centered reasons. So uh, the most gifted church also had the most problems with a lot of gifts come uh, a lot of egos, a lot of pride, and a lot of difficulty. And so Paul is writing to them, trying to put their gifts into perspective. And uh, as he's writing this letter, you can almost hear him thinking uh, this. So you're telling me that your church is simply the best that you all have the most gifts, that you're a better church than, than other churches, but you've got a son sleeping with his stepmom, and you're just 
letting that go, <laughs> clearly your, your church is not the best church in the world. So Paul's saying, look, you're arrogant. You should be mourning. You guys are all puffed up with pride, with all your spiritual knowledge. But, but, but you should really be crying. You should really be uh, checking yourselves rather than being arrogant about your church. So what was going on here? Simply uh, a son was sleeping with his stepmother. It was an ongoing relationship as the verb uh, tense is mentioned. This wasn't a once-off thing where someone had a fling and they repented of it and, uh, and now Paul is coming down hard on them. This was an ongoing relationship that continued to happen and the church was aware of it. In fact, it was so well known, even Paul caught wind of this. And so it's likely that there were more people in, in the town of Corinth that knew about this as well. Um, and, and might have even been shocked by it. And they're thinking, uh, what's going on in the church at Corinth is actually banned in our society. That's, that's not right. You can't, incest is not something that, that we're allowed to partake of in public, but it's going on in the church in Corinth. So this is a widely known thing. It was an ongoing thing. And, and, and what really struck Paul was n nobody in the church was doing anything about it. Uh, nobody took any action regarding it. Uh, this is saying something very powerful about the heinousness of sin because Corinth was a very debauched city. Uh, if, if you were in the church and you were uh, wanting to be planted somewhere where you could get away with a lot of sin and the surrounding uh, non-Christians wouldn't notice, you want to be in Corinth. You want to go there because you can live pretty much however you wanted. And nobody around you is going to say, well, you horrible Christians, I can't believe you're doing this because the general public in Corinth is, is, uh, is living it up. So the people in Corinth used to tons of sin, are actually looking inside thinking, what is going on here? The church was standing out in a very sinful place, and the church is standing out for her sin uh, in this regard. I want to just pause for a moment before we move on to some more details. When the church looks worse than the world, there's a problem, and that's what Paul's getting at. He's like, you guys are doing stuff in the church. You're allowing in the church things that aren't even allowed in Corinth, in, in the civil society. When, when, we're, when we have things going on like that in the church, there, there's, a, there's a huge disconnect, beloved. I want us to also notice something that is, that is implicit in, in this passage. Every sin in the world is in the church. Uh, this passage is proof. We've got incest going on. Uh, Christians murder just like Moses. Uh, Christians sleep around and cheat on their spouses like David. Christians fight like Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Christians get drunk like Noah. Christians love the world too much like Demas. Christians can be full of themselves like the Corinthians. Beloved, every sin in the world is in the church. Hopefully it's being repented of. Hopefully it's being dealt with. Hopefully the, the Holy Spirit is convicting us of them, etc. cetera. Uh, but well, we shouldn't be surprised when these things happen. Uh, church discipline, also what we're noticing is Paul is not saying, look, I, I heard someone uh, uh, broke the speed limit with their camel. <laughs> Put them under discipline, you know. That's not what's happening. Uh, this is a very gross sin. It's a heinous sin. It's a, uh, it, it's a, it's a, a very uh, horrible one. It's a big sin. And that's what church discipline is for. Not for nitpicking, not for, for personality conflicts, but it's to deal with someone who is trapped in a sin which is uh, rather scandalous. And there are two ditches to avoid in this. Uh, some, some churches don't do discipline at all. That's, that's not healthy. Uh, church discipline is required by the Lord. We need to do it. But there are some who want to do church discipline over the smallest things, over nothing. And it really comes down to maybe someone had a, had a conflict with a leader 
or with somebody else that's a personality conflict. Nobody's really in gross sin, but, but, but someone's going to take this all the way uh, to church discipline and excommunication. Uh, that just has no place in the church. But we are guided uh, with, in, in this passage, actually, by what things constitute gross sin, that merit being uh, addressed in the most severe way with church discipline. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5.11, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of, and catch this, the first one is sexual morality, someone sleeping around, etc. Greed, someone who lives for just more money and wealth who's really covetous, that they're just chasing after the world, that's all they live for. An idolater, so someone who's dabbling in other religions. Uh, a reviler, it's literally a railer, a, a verbal abuser, somebody who just uses their mouth to just cut, cut, cut down. A drunkard, someone who just refuses to stay sober. And then finally, a swindler, which is someone who's just robbing, thieving, and extorting other people out of their money and out of their resources. So those are what, when, when somebody is trapped in those sins and they become known, those are things that would constitute moving forward with uh, Matthew 18, going to them, talking to them, bringing witnesses, and then handing it over to the church to be dealt with. Um, some examples from, from real life that I'm aware of, I, I, I'm not very familiar, I've not had a lot of encounters with this, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. A husband running around on his wife, a husband who abandoned his wife and child and just showed up periodically um, expecting to be welcomed back in, and uh, he was eventually excommunicated. A man who got drunk weekly for months and years and then did crazy destructive things in the midst of his drunkenness. Those are things which would constitute church discipline. Uh, uh, something else about that I want us to notice first regarding uh, the, the cases of church discipline. Uh, witch hunts for sin, uh, where leaders and members read into every conversation and every syllable and arrive at their own conclusions are, 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 not, are, are not church discipline cases. They shouldn't be. Uh, this teaching about church discipline and purging out uh, the leaven, uh, getting rid of those who don't live as Christians or who are unrepentant, is not a license for uh, Christian leaders or for Christian members to say, hey, uh, I'm just going to pry into so-and-so's life because I don't really like them or because I have something against them or just for fun because it will make me feel better. And I'm going to see how far in I can get, dig up all the dirt, and then I'm just going to throw it, not in their face, I'm just going to start telling everybody else about it and start the process of it. Uh, one of the greatest ways to kill that is if somebody does talk about church discipline or bring it to the church is ask them, did you actually talk to the person about it? Did you go to them, Matthew 18? Because if you have to go confront somebody about their sin and talk to them about it, uh, the greatest deterrent, uh, the greatest deterrent to, to bringing forth a church discipline to cases is forcing somebody to go talk to the person face-to-face. -face. Most of the time, people will say, it wasn't that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. I don't have anything against them. And I, I, I'm just going to move on because I've looked in the mirror of my own life. That's what happens a lot of the time. And if that's where we are, then we should just let it die and off we go. But where people are trapped in sin, indeed, we should start that process and go through it. And I want us to, to take uh, one more thing before we move on to the process of it. Uh, gross sins do not automatically merit being removed from the church. Uh, what's going on in this passage is there is an ongoing sexual relationship. That, that's very clear in the way Paul is putting this. Like I said, it wasn't a once-off fling. It, was, it wasn't something that happened. Uh, look, we're sorry we made a mistake, uh, and, and now we're done with it. It was continuing to go on. 
And the reason that any church discipline case can continue is because there's unrepentance. As soon as there is repentance, beloved, the, the, everything stops. Everything grinds to a halt. The, the person is welcomed into the fellowship. All, all, the, all the things are dropped down as soon as there is evidence of repentance. So what continues to bring somebody all the way to the, ex, the route of excommunication is unrepentance uh, for, for things that they continue to do and refuse to acknowledge and, and turn, around, turn away from. So I want us to notice as well in this passage, secondly, the process of church discipline. Uh, there, there are really two things in this passage. There's, there's more to it in Matthew 18. We'll briefly note that. But there's two in this passage I want to particularly highlight. The first step in the process is to remove them from the church. Uh, you see that in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. You see it in verse 5, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And then you see it in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. If you have a membership role, it looks this simple. If you have a membership role, you take their name off the roll and they're no longer welcome to come to the Lord's table. It's simple as that. Uh, you don't consider them to be a member of your church. Uh, you remove them from uh, the midst of the congregation. Now, we know from Matthew 18 that there would have been a process leading up to this, or there should have been, where if someone's in sin, the person who knows about it, and you deal with it as publicly as it was known, so if it's just between two people, you keep it there, and you go to them in person and say, look, uh, you've offended me this way. Would you please repent, or we need to deal with this? And if they, ref if they, if they repent, you've won your brother or sister back. That, that, that's the goal. That, that's amazing. But if they refuse, then you take two or three witnesses with you. And that doesn't mean two or three people who've witnessed the sin, because then anybody could sin around one person, they'd be fine, right? <laughs> it's two or three people who are just going to sit in on that, on that meeting. They're just going to be part of it. They're going to listen to the accusations, they're going to listen to the defense, and they're going to hear it out. And then if they repent, then again, you've won your brother or sister. If you don't, then you turn it over to the church. And from there, the censures look different depending on the denomination. It's going to be withheld from the Lord's Supper, removed from office if it's a church officer, and then finally some sort of excommunication um, or maybe even definite censure before then. But there is a process before you remove them from uh, the church, and this can be ugly. Uh, one of the reasons church discipline isn't necessarily uh, something desired in a church, something loved by the people, even something sought out for. Most people uh, who join a church are saying, do you practice church discipline? If you don't, I don't want to be part of it. I know this in Pella it might be different, but in, 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 in the broad world around us, among other Christian people, that's not necessarily one of the marks of a church that people are seeking out because it can be ugly. It's very painful. I remember one case where uh, someone involved in church discipline was actually threatened to be beaten up uh, by someone involved in it. Uh, it can get very ugly, uh, beloved, when, when you have to deal with um, a sin in the church. Uh, but something to note uh, as well, when, when, when the process of church discipline is unfolding, it's so important that those who are involved in it, the whole church, the leaders, those who know, uh, deal with the person with much care and with much love. Because the worst thing that can happen is that someone is excommunicated and they leave, and justifiably so, they say this, the church is no better than me because I committed this sin, but they were hateful, they were nasty, they were cutthroat, they didn't even care about the truth, and they never even listened to what I had to say. Now, they may be in sin. They may 
rightly have been excommunicated. But beloved, they're not going to feel the destruction of their flesh from a congregation which removes them uh, in that instance near like they would if we are with them patient, loving, kind. They were listened to. They were treated with a lot of respect and a lot of love and a lot of empathy. And yet the same result took place. So for any of us involved in this process, it's absolutely imperative that in the process, the process is important, that those who are uh, uh, being accused of things are treated with the utmost of respect. Uh, notice as well in verse 5 that the process involves the congregation. Verse 5, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. So excommunication actually takes place in the gathered church. It's not, you know, one or two people behind the scenes pulling this off, but it's, it's the whole church together doing this. And in fact, 2 Corinthians, Paul will talk about the will of the majority. So there were a majority of people in Corinth who were actually putting this person on the outside so that they felt the weight of it. And then he says, now it's time to welcome them in lest they kind of despair due to excessive sorrow. Uh, so indeed, this is a whole church uh, deal. Uh, where some churches can run stuck, where we can run stuck, is if there's just a few people, maybe the elders and some others, who behind the scenes are doing this, and then one day there's just an announcement, hey, so-and-so is excommunicated. <laughs> and people, rightly so, stand up and say, uh, what do you mean? Uh, you mean to tell me that we have to disassociate with them? We know nothing about this. We aren't in the loop on anything. Uh, uh, we don't even know if we agree with you. Like, you haven't been keeping us informed. You haven't, us brought, you haven't brought us through this process at all. And so, if you're asking if, if the whole church is supposed to be involved in this together, the process of putting someone out, then the church needs to be on board with this. At least the majority of the church needs to be on board with this, beloved, for it to be effective. So, uh, it, it's a church-wide thing when we go through this process. So, uh, the... The first thing in the process of it is removing them from the church. The second thing is we treat them like an unbeliever, verses 9 through 11. I'll, more on details in just a minute. Uh, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm, I'm, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So uh, the Book of Church Order actually uh, has a great uh, little bit, uh, the OPC Book of Church Order, on how do we treat um, uh, someone who's been excommunicated. Paul says don't associate with them, and he's not talking about sexually immoral people in the world. He's not talking about my coworker uh, who doesn't know the Lord, they cheat on their spouse, and so I'm not going to associate with them. No, associate with them, befriend them, tell them about Christ. He's not talking about that. He's talking about inside the church. Uh, how do we treat people who they claim the name of brother or sister? They're saying, look, I'm a Christian, and yet their lives don't reflect it. And they've been excommunicated now. How do I relate to them? How do I, how do I live around them? And uh, Paul says, don't associate with them. What does that mean? Uh, uh, Jesus in Matthew 18 says, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. The book of church order, order puts it this way, as long as they persist in sin, let them be to you as an unbeliever. We exhort you, beloved Christians, do not wash your hands of them. On the contrary, pray for them with lamentation. Try to evangelize and warn them as you would a lost sheep, but do not associate with them as a fellow believer. 
that they may be ashamed and be brought to repentance. In other words, uh, don't treat them as if nothing happened. Uh, don't go on in your relationship with them as if, oh, no big deal. Uh, you're still a brother or sister in Christ. We're still going to fellowship. Nothing's really going to change in our relationship. Paul's saying, look, something has to change. Uh, when someone is excommunicated, the church is saying, as far as we know, as far as we can tell, because we can't judge the heart, only God knows the heart. But from all outward appearances, by the fruit, from what we can tell, it doesn't look like you're a, a Christian. And we're putting you outside of the church in the hopes that you will repent, in the hopes that you are a Christian and you'll turn around. But at this point, we, we don't know, and we turn you over to, to the Lord. So uh, don't pretend nothing happened, but indeed befriend them, uh, love them. Uh, sometimes this is really difficult because in the process of church discipline, hard feelings can erupt. People can become at great odds with each other, and then it's hard actually to love the person well. Uh, so we have to guard our own hearts if we're the ones who are putting someone else out. But the call indeed is to, to love them. Uh, we don't hate non-Christians, right? So there'd never be a time when we would hate somebody who's excommunicated. Just the nature of how we interact with them and, and how we view them uh, is going to change, and that will affect our relationship. Well, Paul mentions two goals of church discipline. Uh, verse 5, the first goal is repentance. Uh, he talks about the destruction of the flesh by Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So there's, there's two things in this, this, this trying to bring them to repentance. It's first put them out so that they can feel the destruction of the flesh by Satan. Now, in, in the days of the apostles, this could literally mean, as it did in the days of Job, when Satan was allowed to just inflict him with boils and sickness, it could mean that you put this person out in Corinth and the devil's going to come after them and they're going to get really sick. That's what it could mean in that day. Uh, it could mean as well in that day that when you're outside of the fellowship of God's people, outside of the church, that Satan can have his way with you uh, in a way that he couldn't if you were inside participating in the means of grace, etc. That, that's possibly what it could mean as well. But what it means for sure in our day is that when you put somebody outside the congregation, erase their names off the rolls and say, you can't come to the Lord's table with us anymore. You're not welcome to come to the Lord's table anymore because we don't think you're a believer and you've got you've to turn around. They're going to feel that, beloved. And it's not just one or two people in the congregation. It's the whole church coming together saying, yeah, this is right. Your life is just a mess. And the worst part is not that it's a mess because that's not the end of the world. It's that you just don't repent. It's that you just can't see there's something wrong, that you're just treating people horribly, that you just don't, you don't love the Lord. That's what we're seeing. And when a whole congregation comes around to say that in a loving, kind fashion, beloved, that is powerful in, in grating against people's souls to get them to turn around and say, if everybody's saying this about me, there must be something wrong in my life. Maybe they're right. They've treated me with respect, even though they may very well hate us. They've treated me with respect. They've loved me well. And, and they're all saying this. Maybe there's something to it. And I, I, I had friends in the church. I was treated well. Something's going on. And beloved, God can use that so powerfully. There's so many stories of people who've been removed from the church. And they actually came to know the Lord afterwards or Christians who are stuck in sin, they're born again but stuck in sin, and the only way that they were going to be done with the sin was what? They, they got kicked out of the church, and they finally realized, if I don't get my act together, I really am not a Christian. 
and they came to repentance. They were always a Christian, but they were, they were fooled into sin by the devil, and he got a foothold and dragged them down. So, so the goal is that they have temporal pain brought on, in this case, by Satan, but also by being removed, whatever that looks like, so that their spirits may be saved in the day of the Lord. And in other words, Paul's saying this, it doesn't matter what kind of pain people have to go through. If it results in their salvation on the last day, then it's worth it. It doesn't matter what kind of pain somebody has to go through. Well, I lost my friends. This is hard. The church is saying I'm, they don't even think I'm a Christian. Love it. That's painful. And we shouldn't try and ameliorate that or, or pass over it lightly or say it's not that big of a deal. We're saying, no, it is a big deal. This, this is a big deal. You've known the gospel. You profess faith, and now you're denying it by your life. This is a big deal. And you need to feel the weight of it. That's what we're telling them. And with that, the Lord may bring them to repentance so that their spirit on the last day is saved. That should be our goal. Not necessarily what's going on right now in their life, but Lord, use this. Like, turn them around before, before you come again, before, before they die. Uh, the second goal of church discipline, not just repentance, but second in the passage is um, preventing the spread of sin. Uh, take a look at verse 6, if you would. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is where I'd like to kind of bring in Exodus 12 and 13 uh, along. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, every Israelite household was called to purge out each house of leaven. Uh, chapter, again, Exodus 12, 19, for seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. They had to get rid of it. Now, that means if you're going to make bread again, you have to get out the yeast, you have to take your time, you have to uh, knead it. So I'm no bread maker, professional bread maker, so I won't go into details or you'll be thinking you have no idea what you're talking about. But the, the gist of it is you have to make a whole new loaf. So the Lord's saying that, again, when, when you come out of Egypt, here's what I want you to celebrate. Uh, if, when you made bread in that day, uh, after you uh, put the yeast in it, it was all uh, ready to go, you would pull off a lump before it would be baked, and you'd put that lump in water, store it in some sort of Ziploc bag, which they didn't have, some way of storing it, so that the next time you made bread, instead of pulling out yeast and starting the whole process again, you could take that leavened bread, put it in your whole big batch, and it would work itself through the whole thing. And then before you went to bake it again, you pull out a little piece of that bread and store it again. And that's kind of your bread starter, as it were. And the Lord's saying, when you do the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you get rid of your bread starter. You, you get rid of it. And you do this for a whole week because I want you, when you come into this new land and get out of Egypt, I want you to have a whole new perspective realizing you're not going to take anything with you on the way out uh, as far as food goes. It's why the lamb, remember the lamb that they, that they slayed and put the blood in the doorpost? What were they supposed to do with anything that was left over? He didn't say pack it up in your grocery bags. No, he said burn it. So when the Israelites left, I mean, they left with a lot of riches, but with regard to their food, the Lord is teaching them something. The meat stays behind, the leaven, the leaven stays behind. You're going to go out with nothing. In other words, the Lord is teaching His people that, that you're leaving behind a whole new life. You don't take anything with you in the next life. In other words, He's creating a clean people, a fresh start for a people. That's what the Lord is teaching the Israelites in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so when you hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. It adds a little, it adds a layer of meaning to it. Oh, I see what he's getting at. Cleanse out the old leaven so that we may be a new lump because we really are unleavened. Beloved, that means something. What God was teaching Israel, they, they probably had some vague notion of it, if any, that when you come out 
Uh, you're not a people who are just rehabilitated. You're not a people who have just changed a little bit. No, you're a totally different people. You're a different lump. There is no part of your old life that ought to show itself up as far as sin goes in your new life. There's a total separation, and that's what the Lord was teaching His people. In the midst of teaching them this, He's saying this, the reason you have to get rid of that old leaven and throw it out is because if you keep any of it and you put it in your brand new lump, it will infect the whole lump. You can't contain it. You can't say, well, Lord, I'm going to keep just a little bit of sin when I, when I come into this new life. You can't contain it, beloved. It will spread throughout our whole life. Same in the church. Well, Lord, so-and-so was saved and they came into the church and we're going to make an exception for them. Uh, they've got a few sins that are pretty crazy and out of whack and, and they're not repentant of and they don't even think they need to repent of it. We're going to make an exception for them and it won't be that big of a deal. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. That exception there will actually start to infect the whole church and wreak havoc on the church. Uh, here's how it comes to work. When a church does nothing about gross sin in her, in her midst, the sin is, comes to be viewed as acceptable first, and then it comes to be viewed as normal. And there's a whole generation, if you don't see it today, a whole generation later, you're going to see the kids come to grips with this, right? Because they're watching. They're like, what are the things that, that the church says are a big deal, and what are the things which they say aren't a big deal, but they really are? that they kind of look over. That's kind of a church-wide sin that everybody says, oh, don't worry about it. But in fact, it's a real problem. Kids catch on to this, even if adults don't. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It happens even in the church, beloved, where we give exceptions for sin. And pretty soon, everybody else looks at that exception and says, well, then when I do it, it's not that bad because so-and-so is getting away with it. Nobody's doing anything about it. And pretty soon everybody catches on to it, and off we go. Which means, as in Corinth, so in Hope and Pella, there can be huge blind spots in a church, beloved. Huge blind spots. Where we're actually doing things or allowing things to go on in a church, like in Corinth, and we don't think anything of it. And, and yet people who come in from the outside, looking from the outside, are going to say, that, that is totally out of whack. Why aren't you catching that? Which should keep us on our knees in prayer and really looking to the Lord. Why do we do church discipline? Now, finally, it's a painful process. <laughs> I bet I've never met uh, an elder or a member of a church who says, I can't wait to do our next church discipline case. I mean, the next Sunday school class, uh, looking forward to studying a new book of the Bible, looking forward to a new job, a new relocation, whatever, tons of things to look forward to, heaven, but never another church discipline case. So why do we do it? Well, Paul actually tells us why we do it. Verse 7b to 8. For, or because, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So uh, why do we have to get rid of the old leaven? Why do we have to purge from the church people who don't live like they're Christians, who don't repent of sin? Why do we have to go through that painful process in their life and in the life of the congregation? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's why. Well, what, what does that mean? If someone close to you dies uh, and you love them and are committed to them, uh, you're going to do something. You're going to find out uh, what is in their will 
and make sure that it happens. In other words, you want to know uh, what did they want with all the things that had been entrusted to them? Uh, if they die with possessions, if they die with, uh, with land, with money, with, with any sort of resources, you're thinking, I want to know uh, how they want that allocated. And so you go out of your way to make sure that their wishes are granted, right? That what they died for isn't in vain, that what they worked for isn't in vain, but that whatever the desires of their heart were are followed through on. You, you, you make sure that that happens. If you care for them and if you love them, it's a way to, to pay your respects to them. So if they want so-and-so to get X, you make sure that X is delivered on the door of so-and-so um, uh, because you love them. Christ died for the church, beloved. We're committed to him. The Passover lamb was slain for you. He was crucified for you. He suffered and bled and died for you. Jesus did it for you, believer. Insert your name. That's how much he loved you, how much he cares for you, and how much he's committed to your eternal life. He was slain for you. And now, the only response is this. Lord Jesus, what is your will? What do you want me to do? Uh, what would you have us to do? You laid down your life. Jesus rose again. Now he's the reigning king. You saved me, Lord. What is it you want me to do? And his response is this. Cleanse out the old leaven. Cleanse it out. Just, just do it. Cleanse out the old leaven. You're a brand new lump. Don't act like someone can walk into the church with this old leaven and say, here, I want to be part of this new lump. Let, let's just do it and don't worry about how I live. Don't, don't do that at all, Jesus is saying. That, that just has no part in the Christian life, no part in the church. And, and beloved, when this is hard, when this is difficult, we need to remember this, that our Lord Jesus Christ died for a pure church. Ephesians 5, which Lord Willing will, will notice in the coming months, He's in the business of what? Cleaning up his bride so that we're going to be presented on the last day spotless, radiant, beautiful. That's what Jesus wants in his church. So when the ugliness, when the horribleness, when the destructiveness of sin comes in a church and makes his bride start to look just nasty, we are required to honor Christ who died for us, who loves us, who gave his life so we could have life. We're required in order to honor him, to glorify him. We're required to deal with it. As painful as it might be, we're required to deal with it well, to look it straight in the face, to pray for the person's repentance, and to go through the process all the way to the end, no matter, no matter the cost, really. Let, let's pray together.